Hi, my name is Jamie Revenal, and you are listening to Cinema from the Spectrum. Now, just as a disclaimer, I am not a black speaker, and I am in no way intending this as a means of speaking on behalf of black listeners. However, as a fellow person of color, what I hope for this podcast episode is to give listeners an idea of how systemic racism has ingrained itself in popular media and for future listeners to seek out films that have over the years combated the stigmas that came forth from poor black representation in cinema. Picture this. You're making a film about what life is like within a community of people you see day to day. The film comes out. Everyone around the world starts talking about it. Everyone you know and love has seen the film. It's an experience that they share. And thus, it's a film that they love for the same reasons, too. Then there are those outside that community who relate because they face something similar in their lives. Imagine what it feels like to have made a film that's captured the attention of so many over the years, only to have lost out on your chance for an Oscar to Driving Miss Daisy, of all things. And so... In the past decade, we've had two winners of the Academy Award for Best Picture directed by Black filmmakers, those films being Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave and Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, yet never a Black winner of the Oscar for Best Director. We would like to think that today the representation of Black people on camera has drastically improved since the days of The Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, but in all honesty, Both films have laid very harmful effects that still linger within the industry's treatment of black Americans. This consequently affects how audiences have come to perceive their culture on film. And so, in this episode, I'd like to take a moment to go back through time to explore how these stigmas have been challenged through film history. I hope that by adding some more of these films to your ever-growing watch list that we can start paying greater attention to more diverse voices in the industry. So, without further ado, I'm hoping that you're prepared to challenge some preconceptions that came from watching films that have unintentionally laid a pretty harmful effect within the portrayal and treatment of Black Americans, or just in general, Black people on film. So, one thing I will ask my listeners first as we start off this episode is, how many of you have seen Black Klansmen? To those of you that have answered, I have seen it, there are two scenes in that film which I think will best demonstrate what I want to cover in this episode, and there are two scenes that focus on film history. The very first one is the opening, which starts off with a scene from Gone with the Wind. The second scene I want to talk about is one where Ku Klux Klan members are shown watching The Birth of a Nation. These scenes serve as very powerful commentary for Spike Lee decided to take it upon himself to show the damage caused to how black people are being perceived throughout history. And in order to get a better picture of the impact that said films have left behind, then we have to go all the way back and look at these films themselves. Now, if you were ever in a film history class, you would know that The Birth of a Nation is considered to be the very first blockbuster. It was the very first film ever to have been screened over at the White House under the presidency of Democrat Woodrow Wilson. But despite the supposed achievements that inspired other films to follow suit, what stands out most about The Birth of a Nation is none other than one glaring thing, and 
To put it lightly, it's the film's abhorrent racism. From the heroic portrayal of the Ku Klux Klan to the characterization of black Americans as being lazy and aggressive, or even the extensive usage of blackface, The Birth of a Nation remains one of the most highly controversial films ever made. And unfortunately as is, it's a cornerstone in film history for that exact very reason. I want to talk about The Birth of a Nation especially. Putting my opinion of the film aside, we would all be talking about it within the context of a film history class, as if it's one of the most well-made films that the medium has ever come to know. We would always talk about those aspects above everything else. But this is a movie that glorifies the Ku Klux Klan as if they were heroes. This is a movie that shows the Ku Klux Klan as having saved America from the supposedly evil black people. And I'm not gonna say any quotes from the film within this episode out of sheer courtesy for those who are listening right now because my god, it's just ugly. It's so demeaning to think about everything that this film had stood for back within the day. Saying it's one of the most highly controversial films is only scratching the surface because this film has also ingrained itself through popular media over the years in ways that some of us are not willing to challenge, which I think is fairly unfortunate. You'd think that uh, a film that glorified the the Ku Klux Klan back in the day was condemned over the years for the fact that it's so blatantly racist, but you'd also think that we've learned not to fall down to such a degrading picture back in the day. Yet, one of the most popular films ever made, and that film is none other than Robert Zemeckis' Forrest Gump, features clips from The Birth of a Nation, and in one among many of its more problematic decisions that forms the story, the title character is named after Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a Grand Wizard for the Ku Klux Klan. While The Birth of a Nation was as popular as ever in the 1920s, a filmmaker by the name of Oscar Mishaw ended up challenging the stigma set forth by Griffith's film. Mishaw's second feature film, Within Our Gates, is the earliest known surviving film to be directed by an African-American filmmaker, but that also leaves us wondering as to what more there could have been before this which unfortunately we might never be able to see at all as many of these films are sadly lost. Although Mishaw has stated that Within Our Gates was not intended to be a response to the birth of a nation, its contrasting portrayal of the Ku Klux Klan could not be ignored by its viewers. Now, I do want to get into a lot greater detail about this film because you'd think that considering the time period which it came out, it would sound almost like it hasn't aged very well, but time has not been as kind to this movie for a completely different reason. This is a movie that came out exactly 100 years ago. Just think about that. It's a movie that came out in 1920, but it's not as widely preserved and it's available in the public domain, which means you can watch it on YouTube or even on its Wikipedia page. But there's a great restoration for this film available on the Criterion channel for those of you who are interested because they are screening some of these films. They are screening so many of Oscar Michaud's surviving films for free in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter 
Modern Movement. And to put it lightly, they are such a great, great resource if you want to expose yourself to so much more world cinema, especially from countries where you probably might not be as well versed in if you're talking about how many films from them you may have seen. But that's a completely different topic for another episode entirely. Within Our Gates is a silent romance film about an African-American woman who is trying to um, earn money in order to help a school for young African-American children. It's a film that unfolds in a non-linear fashion, especially as you get to witness everything that's been happening to the film's lead character, Sylvia, portrayed by Evelyn Prier. It's not a film that unfolds in the most typical fashion either, but you'd think that for all these reasons, it would still be widely known as being incredibly innovative. It's a film that's almost so shocking in terms of how it portrays racial relations, given the time period in which it came out. There's also an anxiety that you can feel from watching this movie about the very concept of being mixed race. But you know, that's exactly what makes this movie a great case study. The fact that it portrays racial anxieties so much better than most films that have come in the years since. It's remarkable, I must say. And yet, somehow, we still give D.W. Griffith all the credit because this is a movie that came out within the shadow of the birth of a nation as the Ku Klux Klan was getting popular again at the time. I think that Mishaw's films especially make great case studies for earliest positive portrayals of black representation on camera, especially when you're looking at how these films have portrayed the sort of struggle that they've been going through, through racism. Some of the images that you'll see in this movie are incredibly shocking for the time period. It's a film that addresses what has happened under white supremacy. It also portrays the lynching of black people too. Just imagine what it must have been like to see this movie in 1920. That must have been horrifying. But, you know, that's exactly what The Birth of a Nation was promoting, too. They were trying to say, oh, these guys are the heroes for doing that. It's also just impressive to think that this is a movie that Mishaw made with a fairly low budget, too. Despite the fact that so much of the production of this was also fairly strained, it still came out so beautifully. And it was a film that was thought to have been lost, and yet it was discovered again in Spain within the 1970s. Although, sadly as is, a fairly brief sequence within the middle is lost. The English intertitles for the film, many of them are also completely gone. But when the Spanish print was discovered, all the Spanish intertitles had to be replaced. It also raises a question about the preservation of many of these films, especially when his films did not receive the same sort of archiving privileges that many of his other contemporaries have done. So that's why I think this movie is worth talking about, even now. It's a really beautiful film. I highly recommend checking it out if you ever have the time, but come on, it's only around 80 minutes. That having been said, I think it's just really a blessing that many of Mishaw's films, at least these ones, are still surviving. You see, Oscar Mishaw's films were among the earliest examples of race films, which are primarily aimed towards black audiences from the 1910s to the 1950s, when these films were being made prominently. And among other surviving films that he directed, include The Symbol of the Unconquered and Body and Soul, 
which are available for viewing on the Criterion channel right now for free in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And like I said prior, it's a great service, especially for films like these. But because the audience for these films were so limited at the time, budgeting limitations had also went and affected their archiving. This is why so many of the films that were produced by his company, the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, sadly, many of them are lost. And this isn't something that applies only to Ms. Shaw's work. It's a problem that many of his contemporaries have also suffered. If there was a director like Oscar Michaud being as prominent as he was back in the day, making films for black audiences or even white audiences who wanted to try and get a sense of how things could change for the future, unfortunately, the archiving for these films was never the greatest and some of the surviving prints are not exactly in the best shape. But you'd also imagine that there were many other black filmmakers at the time who also wanted to put their voice on camera for the whole world to see. And sadly, many of them are lost. It's just such a tragedy to me. And of the surviving films, I've already went in great detail about Within Our Gates, but that and Body and Soul are absolute must-watches, as even I admittedly still have a whole lot to catch up on. Both of these films, thankfully, were selected for preservation within the United States National Film Registry, and hopefully that means that more of these films can be discovered within the future for many audiences is coming forth, because Miss Shaw he is a wonderfully talented filmmaker. He's just such an, an amazing storyteller. But sadly as is, he never transitioned well into the sound era. And he passed away in 1951 at 67 years old. As the years had went by, the discriminatory portrayals of African Americans had continued. Even blackface remained as popular as ever, making its way into the world's very first talking picture, The Jazz Singer. Yet beyond blackface, the terrible misrepresentation of black communities in popular media boiled down to stereotypes. Now, this is where I think we ought to talk about the very first African-American Oscar winner, Hattie McDaniel for Gone with the Wind. In that movie, she portrays Mammy, a known stereotype for black women within the era. Here's a little something for those of you who don't know what that stereotype is. It's arguably one of the most well-known caricatures of African-American women back in the day. And the Mammy was essentially boiled down to black women were just happy to work for their owners as slaves. Now, here's a little something else that we want to put into context. Gone with the Wind. At the time, it was the highest grossing movie ever made. It went on to win the Oscar for Best Picture, and it's one of the most widely revered movies of all time. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, here's what uh, Hattie McDaniel's character has said. Her character, Mammy, was fighting against black soldiers whom she believed to be a threat to Scarlett O'Hara's position within her plantation in Georgia. Here's a little something else that's worth considering. This movie was set on the eve of the American Civil War, and it's a movie that glorified the Confederacy, and here it is still remaining every bit as popular as ever. It still remains the highest grossing movie of all time, Adjusted for inflation. Yeah, put that into perspective. The highest grossing movie of all time, Adjusted for Inflation, is not Avengers Endgame. It's Gone with the Wind for every moment. It just glorified the Confederacy. 
it's just almost awful to think about. But I'm not gonna lie when I'm talking about what this movie is as a technical achievement because that's exactly everything that we praise the birth of a nation for. It's just, it's a very well-made movie, Gone with the Wind. It's every bit as beautiful as you could ever imagine it to be. And yet, all that went into something that has not exactly aged well if we're talking its politics. And personally, I don't think I'll ever watch that movie again because I don't think I would ever want to sit through four hours of that ever again. But here's something else that's also worth uh, putting into consideration. Hattie McDaniel, when she became the first African-American to win an Oscar, she was also encountering racism, segregation all throughout her career. Even back when she won her Oscar, she was segregated from Olivia de Havilland, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the time. Just think about that. It was something that still happened at the time, and you think back then things were going smoothly? No. I think that the fact that she had to sit at a different table says a whole other thing entirely. Her final wish was to be buried in Hollywood Cemetery, but as expected, she was denied because the graveyard was restricted to white stars only. Yeah. You'd think that somebody who managed to make history would be getting a whole lot more respect at the time, yet stuff like this has happened, it would prove the exact opposite. No, Hollywood was no saint at the time. Even if this character was exactly something she willingly put her life into, it still just is awful to think about. Now, if we're going on to talk about more awful representation of African-Americans in Hollywood at the time, how about we also enter the one film that Disney themselves are embarrassed of? Enter 1946, Song of the South. It's the one film that Disney refuses to put on home video in the United States. It is also the one movie that Disney doesn't even want to put on their streaming service at all. But it's an interesting film to talk about in retrospect, yet not exactly an interesting one to watch. <laughs> Putting it lightly, what exactly is this film about? I'm gonna read a synopsis online. I'll just read the one from IMDB as I, as I talk a little bit more about this movie because I don't even think I want to... I don't... I'm not gonna sit through that movie again just for the sake of this podcast. From IMDb, the storyline kind of just uh, boils down to this. The kindly storyteller Uncle Remus tells a young boy story. He's about trickster Brer Rabbit who outwits Brer Fox and the slow-witted Brer Bear. If you cringed listening to that, you would probably cringe even more if you ended up actually watching the movie. And you can say all that you will about whatever Disney intended for the movie back when it came out. You could say that Disney wanted this to be a positive portrayal of African Americans at the time, especially as it reinforced the black vernacular stereotype through the Uncle Remus character. You could even say that it's a film that wanted to promote something good, something just so warm-hearted, but even Here's something else that's worth considering. No matter how much its heart may be in the right place, that doesn't, uh, that 
won't ever change the fact that it still boiled everything down to an awful stereotype that is so, so demeaning. It's so... It's so... Oh man, I'm losing my words just thinking about this again. It's a film where every black character is a stereotype, the worst that you can imagine. And somehow, Disney put this out back then. They have not put it out on home video since, not even with a disclaimer that this was something that represents how we made films at the time. It is incredibly racist. Everything is so stereotypical, no matter how much Disney puts that supposedly cutesy aesthetic with all the cute animals. Also, just the worst part about it is that it's incredibly boring. I've known people who've watched this movie out of morbid curiosity and no matter how well-intentioned it may be, it's also very representative of the problems that white audiences at the time would think are the answers to solving the many problems that were created through systemic racism. The worst part about this this movie's existence is that it's also the movie that Splash Mountain, that ride in Disneyland was based on. Just think about that. Something that just seems so fun. It's also attached to their most horrendous movie. And no matter how much Disney would try to hide it, they can't change the fact that this was something that they made back then. They went for it. They haven't faced repercussions for it. It's just awful. Even though renowned black actors like Oscar winner Sidney Poitier were making an effort to break from these stereotypes with their work, they were still carrying the burden of playing identities that were more often than not shaped by misinformed white filmmakers. Now, I'm, I'm just going to say this first. This isn't something I mean to say about every white filmmaker who made a movie about black people living in America at the time. But you can tell that there's some clear difference between how a white filmmaker chooses to explore an issue regarding black people and how they live their lives versus how a black filmmaker would choose to address the same subject matter. Let's enter the films of Norman Jewison, for one, especially In the Heat of the Night, the film that won the Oscar for Best Picture for 1967. This is arguably Sidney Poitier's most famous role. You would probably recognize the quote, They call me Mr. Tibbs. It's also a film which you'd think that he would have won the Oscar for Best Actor for, but nope. Instead, it went to his co-star Rod Steiger. This is a great movie. It's definitely a lot better than you would expect given the time in which it came out, but I'm just gonna say, I think Norman Jewison, he's a very great director. He's definitely made this a whole lot better than you could expect most other white filmmakers to address this issue, but it still has a bit of a burden that you could expect from the fact that this is a movie by a white director about racism within an American town after an African-American detective ends up getting accused of murder by a racist police chief. That's the Rod Steiger character, which he won the Oscar for. But if you're just looking at it on a surface level, people are just going to take the most misinformed perspective away from this movie. But as these awful misrepresentations of African-Americans within the studio system remain so prevalent, let's enter a filmmaker who knew he wanted to start a revolution. 
This filmmaker who I'm talking about is none other than Melvin Van Peebles, who is perhaps best known for this movie because he made it outside of the studio system because what movie studio would give a very big budget to a movie like this at the time? I can't even think of any. Heck, I can't even think of any who would be willing to put this much money into a project like this now because it's a movie that could only have been made just with the same sort of rawness that you could only find through the fact that the production in general was rough. And this film was none other than Sweet Sweetback's badass song. So for a little bit of context, this was a movie that came out in 1971, like the year after Melvin Van Peebles had just made his first Hollywood picture, the comedy Watermelon Man, directed for Columbia Pictures. It's a story about a white man who wakes up black and suddenly becomes alienated from the people whom he loves most. What do you think? In 1970, you'd think that a black filmmaker making this would, would actually be quite interesting to think about, but because of the fact that he made it for a big studio, he couldn't really alter the script. It was still written by a white man. So this is why after Watermelon Man, Melvin Van Peebles wanted to make something where he had full creative control. And that's where Sweet Sweetback's badass song came about. It was a movie that he wrote, directed, edited, and even scored. And he even created the marketing campaign. It was a film that nobody could even predict what was going to happen after it was done because it's a movie that I can't even imagine most white audiences would watch and think. This is something that everybody absolutely needs to see, but... <laughs> oh my god. This is a movie that was made with so many setbacks. It was made on a super small budget. There's so much that happened on set that ended up stalling it as well. And it was a very rushed production. And it was a movie made without the support of the workers union. And Van Peebles couldn't even afford a stuntman, which meant he had to perform all the stunts himself. And some of the film's explicit sex scenes also were unsimulated. It's worth noting that this is a movie about a black man who is on the run from white police authorities at the time. And when this movie finally came out, it was considered essential viewing for members of the Black Panther Party. It became a huge hit despite its X rating. Few theaters at the time wouldn't even want to carry the X rating because it was just associated with nudie films at the time. But I think what's most important about this film is that it would give a fresh start to the black exploitation picture alongside films like Shaft by Gordon Parks and Dolomite by Derville Martin. And so with many of these setbacks that came forth within the studio system, that's where it's worth talking about the independent film scene as it became home for many black filmmakers at the time. For those of you who don't know who Charles Burnett was, his long career stretched as far as films that go from the debut Killer of Sheep to My Brother's Wedding and eventually into the high budget to Sleep With Anger. Two of these films have the distinction of being selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. It's also 
I think Burnett's films are essential towards understanding the experience of living entirely within Black communities. Now let's talk a little bit about Killer's Sheep for one. It's a film that was inspired by the films from the Italian neorealist movement. And as a matter of fact, it was also originally submitted by Burnett as his Master of Fine Arts thesis when he was a student at the UCLA School of Film. The film premiered in 1978, but unfortunately he couldn't get the film to a general release because he wasn't able to secure rights to the music which he used in the film. However, in 2007, the music rights were purchased and the film got a newer restoration from a 16mm print to a 35mm print and a beautiful, beautiful movie. It doesn't exactly have a very defined plot. It's a very loose, very raw portrait of African-American life of the time. And I think it's one of the most beautiful films ever made from that era. If you've never seen it, this is something you should put on your radar. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Although personally, I am a little bit more partial to his film My Brother's Wedding, which came out a few years later. But I think that if we're going to talk about Burnett, you, it's essential that everybody watches Killer of Sheep at least once. It's such a beautiful movie, but you know, Burnett, he's just an amazing director in general. As his work has continually remained so influential over the years, he's also said in his own word that in cinema, black people are the only ones whose language is considered realistic when it's demeaning. And films like these have changed that for the better. And you see another big turning point had came within the late 1980s which saw Spike Lee's big breakthrough in 1989 with Do the Right Thing. It was a film about racial relations as they simmered into growing tensions within one hot summer day in bed to die, and it was an instant game changer. It was deemed by Siskel and Ebert as the best film of the year, and it received two Academy Award nominations, yet failed to acquire a Best Picture nomination, losing out to Driving Miss Daisy. Despite the raves, the film was met with great controversy. Audiences protested the content of the film, fearing that it would incite a riot amongst black audiences akin to what happens in the film's noted climax. What's sad is that viewers reacted with greater shock over witnessing property damage in comparison to a scene where a man was being murdered in cold blood as a result of police brutality. Unfortunately, this type of racial bias still remains a prevalent issue today. As his career only began to take off even further, Spike Lee's films only began to grow in scope as he addressed race relations through history and continued to challenge the progress of allyship within the film industry. Here's a little something that you probably might not have known about one of his biggest films, Malcolm X. Take this into consideration. This is a movie about a black activist, Malcolm X of all people. It was a film about a man who promoted black empowerment when, at the time, it was still so controversial an issue. Up until Spike Lee came about, it was originally going to be directed by Norman Jewison based on his work from the Best Picture winner in the Heat of the Night. And of course, this choice was met with great protests because Jewison was white and Spike Lee was among the most vocal critics of the decision. 
And soon enough, this is where it was decided by the film's producer, Marvin Wirth, that it would be more appropriate to have a black filmmaker direct the film, which led to Jewison leaving the project and Spike Lee taking over. Now just try to imagine this. Try to imagine what went through the studio executive's head at the time that a film about the life of Malcolm X was going to be directed by a white man. You could tell they really just wanted to go for the Oscars, but what Spike Lee did, he made it something else entirely. It's an epic unlike any other. It's one of the very best films of the 1990s. I'd argue maybe even all time. It's one of the greatest biopics ever made. And it was almost going to be directed by a white man, despite the content. Crazy stuff, huh? Another voice of criticism worth addressing to challenge the predominantly white industry came from none other than John Singleton, the Academy Award-nominated director of Boys in the Hood. When Singleton wrote the script for the film, he was highly protective of it as he strictly defined it as a Los Angeles story and insisted that only he were to direct the project rather than another black filmmaker from, let's say, the East Coast who probably doesn't have the same sort of experience that John Singleton did in Los Angeles. Columbia Pictures had hoped at the time to make a film similar to Do the Right Thing, so this led to the project being greenlit, and Singleton would later become the first black filmmaker and youngest director at the time, at 24 years old, no less, to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Director. Despite having achieved success with Boys in the Hood, Singleton's career had never met the same success since, and before his death in 2019, Singleton has stated in an interview, They want black people to be what they want them to be. And nobody is man enough to go out and say that. They want black people to be who they want them to be, as opposed to who they are. The black films now, so-called black films now, they're great. They're great films. But they're just product. They're not moving the bar forward creatively. When you don't try to make it homogenized, when you try to make it appeal to everybody, then you don't have anything that special. As we move into a more current period with films like Moonlight and Get Out, which were hits at the Academy Awards within their respective years, some people would like to think that the select few films and 12 Years a Slave would be enough to compensate how criminally ignored black people have been within the industry for so long. But when Green Book won Best Picture, it only reaffirmed that a whole lot of work still has to be done because said film only reaffirmed a fairly regressive belief about racism internalized in American society, even as its heart was, let's say, was in the right place. This becomes an even greater irony considering the fact that Jordan Peele's film Get Out won Best Original Screenplay the year before. And Get Out was often noted as a wake-up call towards systemic racism that came from a liberal point of view, yet somehow the message was missed entirely. So let's say this. This is a film about a black man dating a white woman who ends up meeting up with the white woman's family, and they take something of a very patronizing perspective when he comes into their home. This isn't an issue that solely pertains to conservative racism, it's also liberal racism, which is exactly what the film was addressing. 
see, it was never an issue that stemmed solely from Green Book, but films like The Blind Side and The Help were among many others that were instrumental in keeping the issue of this regressive portrait of race issues within media prevalent throughout the years. And it's an issue that needs to be fixed sooner rather than later. It's worth addressing that the conversations in, about black representation in film don't end simply with these filmmakers. Because there's a whole other world that we're missing out on. Just think about the fact that some great films had never had their chance in the spotlight to the same extent as a Spike Lee or a Jordan Peele movie. And truth be told, despite efforts for a diverse presence in media nowadays, the fact that racial bias still finds its way into pop culture today demonstrates just how deeply damaged the industry still is. Past films that have shaped harmful biases still leave incredibly long-lasting repercussions that may not be so easily erased. Now, some would argue that Do the Right Thing would have won Best Picture if it were released today, but with Green Book having beaten out Spike Lee, it only renders that belief completely false. In fact, this statement could always be rebutted by the fact that Crash won Best Picture in 2006 despite, like I said, a highly reductive portrayal of race relations that was made for the sole purpose of winning an Oscar. These conversations, they may start from watching Spike Lee movies, but they certainly do not end there. As we move into a new decade, it's about time we paid more attention to these works and seek out new films. Money and views tend to dictate where companies and industries strive towards. Imagine how many more amazing movies would have been made by truly talented black directors if there was more interest and a bigger budget for stories that were their own. Imagine how we could have invested in their talents. When we personally seek out new narratives and bring our friends and families along, we support the growth of talented people in the Black community. By paying attention, we send companies that have the money to invest a clear message that there is appetite for more. There are organizations out there that support just that. For example, there's the New York-based Black TV and Film Collective, there's also the Black House, which was formed in 2006, and the Black Association of Documentary Filmmakers, West. It might be a good idea to ditch your usual streaming platform when you search for new movie suggestions and try out other platforms that give movie suggestions off or against the mainstream. Like I've mentioned the Criterion channel already, but there's also a lot of great stuff on Canopy too that's worth checking out. The fact is that this bias slowly goes away with exposure, but because mainstream cinema isn't quite there yet, viewers need to make the conscious decision to seek out that exposure. Which I hope many of you who are listening right now and made it all the way to the very end are pursuing within days to come. Thank you for listening to Cinema from the Spectrum. This is Jamie Rebinal, signing off.